0: Thanks for joining us at Keys for SLPs, opening new doors for speech-language pathologists to better serve clients throughout the lifespan. A weekly audio course and podcast from SpeechTherapyPD.com. I'm your host, Mary Beth Hines, a curious SLP who embraces lifelong learning. Keys for SLPs brings you experts in the field of speech-language pathology, as well as collaborative professionals, patients, and caregivers to discuss therapy strategies, research, challenges, triumphs, and career opportunities. Engage with a range of practitioners from young innovators to pioneers in the field as we discuss a variety of topics to help the inspired clinician thrive. Each episode of Keys for SLPs has an accompanying audio course on speechtherapypd.com available for point 0.1 ASHA CEUs, We are offering an audio course subscription special coupon code to listeners of this podcast. Type the word KEYS for $20 off. With hundreds of audio courses on demand and new courses released weekly, it's only $59 per year with the code word KEYS. Visit SpeechTherapyPD.com and start earning ASHA CEUs today. Welcome to this episode of Keys for SLPs. Keys to Cultural Responsiveness and Gender Inclusivity in Graduate Programs. I'm your host, Mary Beth Hines. Before we get started, we have a few items to mention. Here are the financial and non-financial disclosures. My financial disclosure is that I receive compensation from SpeechTherapyPD.com for hosting this podcast. I have no non-financial disclosures to report. Alistair Tresoris receives an honorarium from SpeechTherapyPD.com for this presentation no relevant non-financial relationships exist. And now here's a little bit about our guest today, Alistair Trisoris. Alistair is a graduate student in communication sciences and disorders at the University of Redlands with a bachelor degree in linguistics from UC Berkeley. Alistair is dedicated to improving professionally and personally by practicing cultural humility, and seeking educational opportunities wherever they arise. They are especially passionate about cultivating and advocating for gender-inclusive practices. In their free time, Alistair enjoys playing video games and spending time with their partner and two cats. Welcome, Alistair. Hi. We are so happy to have you here today. I'm happy to be here. Well, thank you for joining us. Now, can you tell us about your journey as a student that led you to the field of speech language pathology?
1: Yeah, honestly, I don't think my journey is super exciting or anything, but basically, it was my mom, who is a registered nurse, who kind of introduced me to the field. She works at a skilled nursing facility, and she was basically just like, hey, there's this growing field called speech language pathology, and I think you'd be really good at it, and that's pretty much how I learned about it. And I looked it up. And I love like language and linguistics and communication. So it did seem really interesting to me and seemed like, you know, a career I could really be passionate about. And so I was at UC Berkeley at the time, they don't have an SLP program, but I decided to do my undergrad in linguistics, which I really enjoyed. And then I took a couple years off, because of burnout, really, but I'm back here in grad
0: school now. All right. So before we we dive into our topic today, can you tell us about your intersectionality?
1: Yeah. So I'm pretty much at the intersectionality of a lot of marginalized identities as a, I'm a Southeast Asian American. My parents immigrated from Thailand before I was born And I'm queer, which is what we will mainly be talking about here today, and neurodivergent. But for my queer identity, I'm bi, which means I like people of multiple gender identities. And I identify as a gender, which comes from the prefix a, meaning not or without. I don't feel like I have a gender. I don't feel like boy or girl, I don't feel in between. I feel like if the gender spectrum is like this box, I am outside of that box. (laughs) And so that really impacts a lot of, you know, how I experience the world. Well, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And speaking of experiencing
0: the world, we're going to be talking today about your experience in graduate school and what you have learned about supporting gender identities in graduate school. So, let's talk about the difference between cultural competence and cultural humility and how they are related to each other
1: and important in our field. Right. So, cultural competence as defined by Asha is about understanding and responding to the all the cultural factors and diversity in your clientele. And so it means like considering the impact of all these factors of like language exposure particularly, but other factors like racial factors too and how that might impact the care that they need. And they really define this continuum of cultural competence beginning from cultural destructiveness which I have the definition on, which is in which attitudes, policies, and practices are destructive to cultures and consequently to the individuals within the culture. So that's one end of the continuum. And then the other end is cultural proficiency, which is when you hold culture in high esteem and champion cultural competence in practice by training others and recruiting diversity. But cultural humility is this other idea that was actually introduced originally among like physicians through this article, 1998 article by Tervalon and Murray Garcia called Cultural Humility versus Cultural Competence. And they proposed that more important is this idea of lifelong learning rather than viewing cultural competence as this endpoint of like knowledge so this lifelong learning and self-evaluation self-critique as well as acknowledging the power imbalances that exist in like the physician patient dynamic or for us the clinician client dynamic but cultural humility is really something that I think you can see if you read the article how this can be applied to like so many areas, not just healthcare.
0: Mm Hmm. Well, thank you for that wonderful reference list that you provided. By the way, and I was surprised to see that that was from 1998. So that article is now going on really 24 years, and, and the research that
1: went into it, 24 years old. Right. Yeah. I remember learning about cultural humility, and it just. It actually really made me feel better, I think, because I do have this attitude of, you know, this lifelong learning and stuff. And when I was in my, at Redlands, we have a class for cultural issues and we talk about cultural competence and stuff. And I remember feeling really overwhelmed, like supposed to just know everything about all these cultures. And so realizing there is no end point, like you'll never be, I mean, knowledge is important foundation. Cultural confidence is a foundation to cultural humility, but knowing that, you know, you will make mistakes and being aware and like just self-aware, self-evaluating, that's the principles of cultural humility mm-hmm. that made me feel like, oh, okay, so I'll mess up, but it'll be okay. <laughs> you know, humble
0: enough to know that we don't know everything that we are continuing to learn. And we will make mistakes along the way and just keep trying.
1: Yes, definitely. uh,
0: Yes. So thank you for sharing that distinction. And I I think it's such an important distinction for us and to also, you know, give ourselves a break when we do mess up and just keep trying. Mm -hmm. So how can graduate schools support cultural responsiveness in the classroom, in your opinion?
1: Okay, so... I know, I feel like this is such a big topic. I'm wondering where to start. I think where to start is the things that aren't just in the classroom, but everywhere, which is, you know, using the names and pronouns that people ask to be called. You can normalize sharing your pronouns, not just in your email signature, but also when introducing yourself to someone new, because people might think, like, oh, I'm like cis you can look at me and tell, you know, I'm a girl or whatever. So I don't need to introduce my pronouns, but by introducing your pronouns, you are helping to normalize that. Oh no, you can't tell just by looking and it might make the other person feel safer to introduce their pronouns. Cause you know, even though I say we should do this, my pronouns are they, them. So I don't introduce my pronouns. Like when I meet any, like everyone, just because I don't know if, this is a situation where I'll feel safe or comfortable to do so. And then, and, you know, we can talk about any of this more if you have questions, but I'm just kind of going through a little list of what I think. What other things can you think
0: of that would be helpful for in the classroom or or everywhere?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, being mindful of the everyday language you use, I think we don't realize how gendered a lot of like language is. And then even things like saying instead of saying both genders, you know, that's binary. You can even switch to say all genders, you know, or like saying opposite sex, you could say another gender or a different gender. Okay. Stuff like like I think that's a lot of it it takes time to just kind of be aware of the language you're using and the way it might be reinforcing the gender binary. And that goes beyond like specific words and also to like stereotyping, you know, interests and activities by gender.
0: Okay. Okay. So let's say you're in a classroom Mm -hmm. and a professor is talking about speech language pathology related topic, and they say this applies to both genders. And how do you feel
1: in that moment? In that moment, you know, I would, it's hard for me to describe the feeling, but I just when these like little things happen, I just feel this little ping. Like, it's just like, just a little like wince, you know? Mm -hmm. Because Mm -hmm. in that moment, I'm being excluded. And I have like an example to talk about that actually for, and this is relevant to how you can be inclusive in the classroom. So in one of my classes, we had to... Record like audio, record ourselves, and analyze that audio using Pratt, which is a speech analysis software. It's like a free software that you can use, and it'll show you, it'll show you the spectrum analysis too, and you can like look at the formant frequencies and stuff like that. So we were just recording ourselves and practicing using it, and seeing the tools available on Pratt. But something else we had to do on our little worksheet was. Like, write down our average pitch that Pratt shows us and then compare it to the average pitch of your gender and then report on the difference. So, obviously, the only options on the paper were male and female. And I was sitting there like, what do I do? I didn't want to leave it blank because I'm, you know, I try to be a very good student. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, well, I got to answer this. So, in the end, I picked female because. I know that's how people do perceive me like 85% of the time. And then like the 15% of the time I'm perceived as male. Like the perception changes when they hear me speak. Cause my Mm -hmm. voice is always perceived as feminine. And I hate that. (laughs) Like yesterday I was out and someone called me sir. And even though that's not right either, just because I'm almost always perceived as female, it makes me kind of happy that I'm like, oh, I'm visibly like, they didn't immediately like look at me and register me as female. So whenever I'm called, sir, I just, I'm like, I don't want to talk because then they'll like realize their quote unquote mistake. Anyway, that was a bit of a tangent, but no, that's I a ended good up example going with that. That's a good example
0: yeah. though, because that is something that someone who is either Goes by a binary gender. They don't have to think about all these things Mm -hmm. and they go through their day and they think about a lot of other things. Obviously, we all think about a lot of other things. But this is not something that's like on our mind. And that's something that is very much on your mind.
1: Yeah, definitely all the time. (laughs) And like, I mean, at home, I'm just me. It's, I'm comfortable. So it's really when I'm out, I'm being perceived. That's when it's like on my mind all the time. Mm -hmm. But to go back to the, Assignment, you know, I went with female for the assignment, but like I had all this internal discomfort doing it. So, to bring this to like, how can you be inclusive in the classroom? Just when you have activities with this kind of interactive component, or when someone has to report on themselves in some way, just like ask yourself, is this activity inclusive of all genders? And if not, Can I modify it to be inclusive of all genders? And there's not really such thing as a non-binary voice or like some sort of average you can put for a non-binary pitch. So it's like, if the answer is no again, then you ask, is this activity necessary? What am I hoping to accomplish or teach through this activity? Like was comparing my pitch to some average data, did that help me learn? Or was it just meant to be kind of, A fun interactive component that actually ended up being exclusive and not very fun for an entire population of people. Um, Right. Mm -hmm. Is this helpful? And if the answer is yes, then it needs an
0: activity such as that, needs to be modified to be more inclusive. And if the answer is no, then maybe the activity does, or that part of the activity doesn't need to be included. Right. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I think that's very helpful, not only for graduate school, but you know, uh, just a good question to ask as SLPs when we're working with any population with any activity.
1: Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. All right. Looking back, what else would be helpful? Something that else I think could be helpful in the classroom is to, you know, establish that you're a safe person for your students. And one way to do that is like, with pronouns and stuff, but also being open to discussing supports and accommodations, like regardless of documented disabilities, I feel like, you know, I have a very complicated relationship with healthcare and a lot of trans people do as well. So for example, the 2015 U.S. Transgender Survey had over 27,000 respondents. So it was the largest survey Of trans people in the US. And they're planning a 2022 survey. I just found this out. So if you go to ustranssurvey.org, you can pledge to take the survey and that'll get you email updates. Like pledging right now doesn't obligate you to participate later. You'll provide consent at that later date. But if you want to make sure you get those updates, I would go to ustranssurvey.org. But for the, I was looking at the 2015 survey results. And so, some highlights are that thirty-three percent had at least one negative healthcare experience within the previous year uh, related to being transgender. Twenty-three percent reported that they did not seek necessary healthcare due to fear of mistreatment, and thirty-three percent did not go to healthcare provider when they needed it because they couldn't afford it. Because also, twenty-nine percent reported living in poverty. So there's all these barriers to. Healthcare, when you're trans, that you might not have like this documentation that you need for support services, accommodations, not to mention the mental health correlations in trans identities. A lot of people will feel, will like experience psychological distress. 40% on the survey had reported attempting suicide in their lifetime compared to 4.9% attempted suicide rate in the overall U.S. population. So Mm -hmm. that's something to really think about how important it is to support trans people, make them feel safe and affirmed. Mm -hmm. Because as you said, you know, some of these things aren't
0: that big of a deal. Some of the, I guess we could say microaggressions, Just but having to endure them over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. And having to think about this, how you are perceived by others all the time mm-hmm. um, is challenging. So how can we as a profession help support people who are transgender and make that journey a little bit easier for them?
1: Yeah. And I feel like, I mean, the most important thing is to know that, like, this is a great conversation we're having, but it's not really It's not enough. Like, I think the best thing is to get, you know, training for your whole team from professional transgender advocates, specifically transgender advocates, because we don't want someone else speaking for us. I mean, the transgender is already like, no population is like monolithic, right? Of course. So, but at the very least, you should get your training from someone from that population. And there are, you know, places who will like do consultations workplace trainings and so bring those people into your space and let them educate and help you and be aware that you know ideas about gender are changing all the time so this isn't a one and done thing either you need to get that continuing education mhm it's a
0: constant effort mm-hmm. intentional effort to have that cultural humility, as we said, a little, little bit ago. Yeah. And yeah, by us having this conversation, by no means do I feel like you are speaking for all people who are transgender. And I appreciate your honesty. And it is helpful for us to hear your perspective to lead us to learn more. Yeah. And, And maybe for some just to demonstrate the need to learn more. Mm hmm.
1: Yeah, I'm glad I can be here. And that actually reminds me of something else I want to talk about that I feel particularly passionate about this is that another way to help is to listen to and learn from your transgender students or other transgender people in your life, but don't approach them with the expectation that they should educate you. Like, you know, maybe this podcast is the start of my professional advocacy career who knows but before this I would say like yeah I'll talk to you about my experiences and stuff but that's if I feel like sharing I'm not a professional advocate I'm not well I'm not like fully versed in all the trans issues that are going on and just putting the onus on you know putting the onus on me feels really unfair I'm trying to think how to phrase this properly, because obviously I don't want people speaking for or like speaking over a marginalized population, but it does get exhausting when like, you know, we are the ones doing all the fighting and we want people to show their support and also do their part to educate in the ways they can. But also there are like professional advocates. Like I mentioned, you should get training from these professional advocates and pay them for their labor rather than turning to like, oh, this person is here. So I'm going to ask them and expect them to tell me everything I need to know.
0: Hmm.
1: Hmm. Did that make sense? I know I kind of- No, like- well, that mm-hmm. does make sense. Okay. Well, and
0: not everybody is comfortable in that space. Mm-hmm. Um, there might be some people who- like to have the opportunity to educate others and other people who don't want to talk about it at all. It's private information and they might view it as not something they want to talk about publicly. So it's important for us to all be sensitive to that.
1: Right. And some people, you know, might not be that involved in the community and stuff like this is a personal identity. It's just, it's really the rest of society that's making our existence political. You know, sometimes I just want to exist. (laughs) So I don't want to have to talk about like all these politics. (laughs) Well, thank you for sharing with us today. And yes, Mm -hmm. for
0: your honesty. And if at any time during our talk today, I ask a question that you don't feel like answering, please don't answer it. And (laughs) feel free to tell me that.
1: Well, I'm happy to be here and sharing today, but just had to put that out there. Like, you know, don't expect this from everyone all the time. Right, right, exactly. Well, thank you for pointing
0: that out to us. Mm -hmm. All right. So there are some people who say, well, it makes me uncomfortable to use like, they, because it is a plural for a singular person. And how do you approach, you know, if someone says that, how do you approach that? Because I'm thinking language is always changing.
1: Language is absolutely always changing. And like, you know, I feel like if someone says that, I just, you immediately know, it's not really about grammar. It's about not respecting these identities or feeling like like they feel threatened by it in some way just because it's, like, different to them. Because, yeah, language is always changing, and I know it won't matter if I tell them, hey, you know, singular they has actually been used for centuries. Or even, fun fact, you, Y-O-U, used to be a plural you. Used to be a plural second person and now it is a singular second person. Well, that is a fun fact. It It is is a a fun fact. It can be both singular or plural. Was there a
0: different singular second person pronoun?
1: Yeah, I think it was like, it's like thy. Ah,
0: yep, that makes sense.
1: Yeah. So I can share this fun language tidbit, but I know that's not really what they're after. They're just trying to excuse. Their transphobia. And, like, you know, a lot of people use singular they without thinking about it every day. Like, oh no, someone left their lunchbox in the classroom. And it's like, there it is. You just did it. (laughs) It's like when you have to use it for like a known entity that for some reason that is like unacceptable to them. And then you just have to feel that's because they don't respect that person and their identity. Mm hmm. You're right. It could be for that. It
0: could also be that someone really is a stickler for grammar. And I think that example that of, of the lunchbox is perfect, because if you are a stickler for grammar and that that's a very common thing to say mm-hmm. in this evolving
1: language of ours. So, well, I would also say, The singular they has been endorsed by the APA Publication Manual, 7th edition. So now you really have no excuse not to use it in your academic writing. Yes, And when was, do you know when that was, the 7th edition was? Oh gosh, it was a few years ago. I want to say 2015, but I don't know if I just pulled that number out of nowhere. Okay, okay. All right. The 7th edition was actually published in 2020. I feel like I heard about it longer than that, but recent, but... Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, to anyone out there who is still
0: not wanting to use it, there you go. Right. We have the seventh edition, and that makes sense. You know, for some people, it's just new to them too, even Mm -hmm. though, you know, that's
1: now two years old and this concept has been around for a while. Yeah. I mean, Singular Day has been used for a long time before APA endorsed it. And we don't, you know, we shouldn't need like a guidebook to tell us. That it's okay to use it. But now we have it for the grammar sticklers <laughs> for the grammar sticklers. Yes. But there are some people out there who, cause I know people.
0: So who literally have never heard of that and they'll say what? And then once it's explained and once I use the lunchbox, they say,
1: Oh, okay. I get it. So I don't know. I just want to put. Yeah. I mean, there. definitely. I like, I try to, you know, show people courtesy and extend the benefit of the doubt. Like, even though to me, it's like, you know, I've known about this for years, but maybe some people just in the circles there and they haven't been exposed to it. But if Mm -hmm. after you explain and they're still resistant, then it becomes a problem of, well, even if it doesn't make sense to you, you should do it anyway to respect this person. And if you don't, then yeah, that's the problem at that point.
0: Exactly, exactly.
1: All right, so we talked a little
0: bit about how these little microaggressions add up and you talked about the microaggression pyramid. Can you talk about what that is? So
1: basically microaggressions are these like little moments. It's not really overt discriminations, but it might be, just these little situational or verbal abuses like being misgendered, for example, or other, or like racial stereotypes or even like situationally like going somewhere and there's only like a men's and women's bathroom. It's just kind of like, I think we've heard about the mosquito bite analogy. Where a couple is like bothersome, but when you get a lot, it's like, how do you handle that? How do you just keep going on normally? You know.
0: Hmm. Hmm. So they add up. Yes. Which is why it's so important for us to all learn more about this. So. Mm-hmm. All right, so we've talked about in the classroom and and some of those things in the classroom are just can be used in general. But let's talk about specifically since we're talking about graduate stu- supporting graduate students. What specifically can on-campus clinics do to support cultural competence? So for
1: clinics,
0: sorry not to interrupt, or cultural humility, mm-hmm. shall we say?
1: <laughs> let's see. For clinics, I would say So now your graduate student is not just interacting with faculty and peers, but will also will be interacting with clients and maybe caretakers. So I think, you know, they need to your student needs to feel safe in like if they're going to disclose something. So now I have to backtrack a little bit (laughs) because, you know, you never really have to disclose your identity to someone like that's private and I mean there is like you can talk about that like being privileged to share information or not like I have a girlfriend I'm often perceived as female so we are obviously a not straight couple (laughs) but I don't have to like share that information I can like you know have a conversation without talking about her even though I love talking about her (laughs) (laughs) but because my pronouns are they them, you know, I kind of have to share that if I want to truly have a comfortable interaction. So, I guess just like communicating with your student and like oh, how do you want to share this? Do you want to share this? How should we approach this? Because I think yeah, when it's working with clients, I think it's like a whole it's a new dynamic because now you're like being trans in the school with among my classmates and my professors is one thing, but working with clients, now I feel like I'm representing the university, you know, and this applies to when we talk about like clinical placements too. I feel like now I'm in this other environment and I'm representing my university and I have to, I'm conscious of how my performance and my attitudes Will be a reflection on the university and if they will want to take students from my university again. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I feel like that brings a whole new dynamic to how you might think about interacting and being open about your identity.
0: Okay. So, what opportunities do you see for clinics to support gender inclusivity?
1: So, specifically, if you have a trans or genderqueer student, then just letting them know you support them and that, you know, if a problem arises, that you'll have their back. I think that's really important because we can feel, you know, really alone (laughs) and vulnerable. And then other things would be like making sure your practice is inclusive. Like you can review your intake forms and update the language on them to be more inclusive of diversity, such as like if it says he, she, just replace that with the singular they, or being inclusive of non-traditional family makeups, like not assuming that every child has a mother and father or that every mother is the primary caretaker, or even that every gestational parent, when you're asking about birth history, is a mother. And obviously your graduate student isn't a client they're not filling out this form but having this inclusive form signals to them that you know this is a safe space that's inclusive of all genders and you know you're practicing what you're preaching
0: mhm mhm speaking of forms can you touch upon sometimes we ask for a lot of background information how about surgical history how do you recommend that information to be requested on a form, or what information is necessary?
1: So, I think the best thing you can do is be specific in asking about surgical history. Like, you can specify head or neck surgeries, you know, because not all trans people, but a lot of them will, you know, elect to undergo surgery to feel more affirmed in their bodies but that might not be something they want to disclose, but then they're filling out this form and they feel like, do I have to disclose this? So if you're really specific, then you can just make sure you get the information you need. So ask yourself, what kind of information do I want? And then ask for that. Because like, you know, do you need to know if someone got surgery to remove their appendix? Will that impact, you know, your services to them? Probably not. So you can then say like, oh, have you had any head or neck surgery and like Mm -hmm. that? So similar to what we were saying before in the classroom.
0: So ask what is needed, Mm -hmm. um, what is needed to be included? And if something is needed to be included, how can that be modified to be more inclusive? Right. So asking specifically for head and neck surgery that relate to speech and language that's needed. Any other kind of surgery, you know, most other kinds of surgeries are not necessary for us to know in our line of work. Mm-hmm. So,
1: yeah, and likewise, you probably don't need to know the person's gender. You can just ask for pronouns. And if you need like sex or gender like information for like insurance purposes, you can ask for that in a separate section from the like basic identifying Information such as like name, pronouns, and birth date. Because, like, I can say, oh, I'm agender, but you know, because I could say non binary, which is more common, but I just personally relate a lot more strongly to the term agender. Because to me, non binary still kind of feels like I'm in that gender spectrum, just not at one of the binary points of it. So that's why I like personally prefer to say agender. But a lot of people haven't heard about that. So if I say, oh, I'm agender, they'll be like, huh? <laughs> you don't need to know that about me. I'm happy to talk about my experience being a gender and what that means for me. But really, you just need to know my pronouns are they, them. And not, you know, not everyone who uses they, them pronouns even might be non-binary. And there are like, like he, him lesbians. They are who feel they are, you know, women, but they use he, him pronouns. Okay. So your suggestion is on the forms,
0: just not to include the gender, just Mm -hmm. say, what pronouns do you use
1: and leave it at that. Right. Because that's all you really know to need to know to refer to someone. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And back to the surgery
0: question, I just said, it's, you know, it's only necessary the head up. But like for like a child, for example, who has had multiple surgeries because of a complicated illness. Mm -hmm. um, Now that would be something that we would want to know because that has to do with health history. So do you suggest like another space on the form for, you know, list surgeries and then under that another space that would say or surgeries surgeries on the head and neck. And then, you know, is there any other information that you would like us to know? So they wouldn't feel like it's
1: necessary to disclose anything,
0: but they have an opportunity to give some information that might be necessary.
1: Yeah, I feel like with adults, you're definitely asking for like head or neck surgery specifically with kids. It is different because, you know, they're still developing. And so I think you can be more like, General, when you ask for that surgical history, but also I think it's always very safe to say, Is there anything else you think we should know? Because Mm -hmm. that makes it optional. You can also do that to be inclusive of like non traditional family makeups. Like you can have a space for like a caregiver or two caregivers and then say, Anything else we should like you want us to know? Because Mm -hmm. some people have like, you know, I was like, my grandparents were very involved in my upbringing, not just my parents. So like if I were to receive services, that would probably be something to mention. Absolutely. Yes. Well, thank you.
0: And as far as the clinic goes, I know you told me that you were instrumental in changing the name tags at your clinic. Can you tell us a little bit about that and why that was important to you?
1: Yeah. So I was talking to, one of the clinic directors at my school and she was saying that, you know, they were getting name tags made. We actually would have gone them our first year, but because of COVID we were all online, all telepractice for our first year. So we didn't have little name tags that we'd wear into the clinic. So we got them at second years and they were saying probably because of me, because I'm like the only one in my cohort that I'm aware of who uses they them pronouns. They were saying they were planning to make pronouns on the name tags optional. Like we could optionally include name pronouns because pre- previously it would just say the name. And I said, oh, you know, I think it would be good if everyone had them and it's not optional because then you're normalizing the practice of you can't tell someone's pronouns by their appearance and then you know, I just kind of feel awkward if I'm the only one walking around with pronouns on my name tag. That makes me feel othered. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so I said, you know, I think everyone should have pronouns on their name tags and they agreed. So now we got our name tags and we all have our pronouns on them. Well, good for you for, I know it's not your job to advocate, but when you
0: feel that it is um, when you're. Comfortable doing so, mm-hmm. um, good for you to make that change, yeah, and it's also kind of nice for you to know that you know next year someone doesn't have to deal with the name tags. it's just the
1: way that it's going to be done, yeah, definitely. I'm always thinking about you know the young queer people and how I want them to have you know an easier time and mm-hmm. feel safe, mhm,
0: mhm.
1: All right. So you talked about supporting
0: the student, talking about, you know, asking about the pronouns. Can you touch a little bit about following through on that support?
1: Yeah, I feel like, you know, to really be an ally to marginalized communities and trans communities, you know, you need to be active in your support. So you can't just say that, Oh yeah, I accept you without, you know, showing up for them when, you know, instances of misgendering or other microaggressions occur. So, I talked a little bit about, you know, making a plan for how to best support the students so they feel affirmed in their identity like in the clinic space or even in the classroom space. And I think you know you need to follow through on that plan and then like just check in and be like you know if you've noticed things haven't been going to plan or just checking in in general like like how are you doing I don't know I don't know how to word this well but basically at my summer externship I decided I'm going to go in there and tell them my pronouns are they them because I'd known I was a gender for years but I was never out about it for a variety of reasons, but like my friends knew and basically only my friends used they, them for me in like workplace and school, like in undergrad, I never did. So this time I was like, okay, I'm going to do it. I had like my pronouns in my email signature and that was like the most out I'd been, but I was like, this time I'm going to actually talk about it and be like, how am I going to introduce myself to parents and stuff? And so we planned that, you know, I would in- introduce myself and be like, hi, I'm Alistair. My pronouns are they, them. I'm a graduate intern from University of Redlands, going to be working here for the next few months. And just like fold it neatly into the introduction. And my supervisor assured me that, you know, if any parents had a problem with it, like they had my back and their clinic has like a no discrimination policy. And so I felt pretty reassured going in Mm -hmm. but then what happened was like the introductions went all okay but I don't know if they didn't remember like the parents because I was constantly misgendered every day by almost every parent and like colleagues too and my supervisor never really like checked in on that or Like, there was no issue with a parent raising issue with me, so there was no need for that kind of support, but there was no support when I was being, you know, called she and her every day during these clinic sessions when these parents are saying to their kids, you know, oh, you have to listen to her and stuff like that. And I feel like in ways, I don't want to put all the blame on my supervisor because, This was also new to her. I had to give her the, you know, lunchbox example. (laughs) I feel like in ways maybe I could have stood up for myself more. But on the other hand, it goes back to what I mentioned earlier about like the power dynamic and me feeling like, oh, this is a new placement. I'm the first student from my school that's been at this placement. I want to make a good impression. I don't want to cause trouble Mm -hmm. and stuff. And so I was just quiet about it most of the time. Okay. Okay.
0: So, and this is, thank you for sharing that story. And I know that you are approaching the story or any experience that you've had just from your perspective
1: Mm -hmm. and
0: just showing and thinking about it, kind of problem solving how things could have been different.
1: There was another time when one of the colleagues was also like calling me she and correcting herself. And then it was happening at multiple points in the conversation. So then at one point she said, Sorry, force of habit. And I just kind of thought, Oh, that's interesting that it's habit because you have only ever known me as someone who uses they, them pronouns. Like some of my friends that I've known, you know, since high school or before knew me when I had she, her pronouns, but you've only known me with they, them pronouns. So what is the habit? And the habit is, of course, looking at someone and assigning a gender, like a binary gender to them based on their appearance or voice or other characteristic. And I know this is very ingrained in our society because I know I do it too. I'll say like, oh, the lady at the store or whatever, but I think I'm getting now into what you should do when you misgender someone. (laughs) And can you share in your opinion,
0: what someone should do or what you would like someone to do? Yes. Because I understand from her perspective, when she was saying force of habit, she is in the habit of using either he or she, she's in the habit of using the binary. Mm -hmm. Um, and it does sound like she was genuinely trying, but there were just some misses Mm -hmm. and those misses were hurtful to you. Because you felt, and I don't mean to put words into your mouth, but it mm-hmm. it, it seems like you didn't feel supported when those
1: misses occurred. Mm-hmm. I mean, I feel it definitely, like, if you notice the miss, that's great. I think, like, it's a good thing because you are aware and you're trying. But when you, like, just kind of trying to excuse it was a little, like, eh, <laughs> I don't think you should do that. And that's going into when you misgender someone, I think. Yes. Please tell us. Sorry. Yes. (laughs) I think the best thing you can do is just correct yourself and move on. Like if you feel a need to apologize, just a quick, sorry, like be like, oh, I was talking to Alistair and she, sorry, they said, or whatever. And where it goes wrong is when you try to over-apologize and say, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I don't, like i don't see you as a girl or something like that i don't know and it's funny i actually had a, like an experience that made me think about this the other day i was in a iep meeting at my school placement and the school psychologist was going through her results for her evaluation of this young girl and at one point she said he i mean she and just carried on and i was just thinking like it's funny how you know when like Slips of the tongue happen all the time. I know I like fumble through my words a lot. And it was just like a little slip and she corrected herself. And wouldn't it have been so awkward if she was like, he, I mean, she, oh my God, I'm so sorry. Of course, I don't think your daughter is a boy, blah, blah, blah. Like, but why do we do that when it's a trans person, you know? And I know it's because, like, the gender binary is so heavily ingrained in our society. And when we think about trans people, we have to confront that. And maybe that's why we're trying to, like, explain ourselves. But that just makes the whole situation, it's just calling more attention to the misgendering, which is already an awkward situation. Or if you're over-apologizing, you're making the trans person feel like they have to say, no, it's okay, Which maybe it's not okay. So the best thing is to just correct and move on.
0: Correct and quickly move on. Okay. Well, thank you for sharing that perspective because, and that's an excellent example that you used in the IEP meeting. And sometimes those answers come really simply to us. Well, if we wouldn't make a big deal of it for someone of the binary genders, then why would we for the transgender? So that is helpful.
1: Just to correct yourself real quick there. So like a trans person can be like of a binary gender if they identify like as a trans man or a trans woman. So I mean, if you if we wouldn't make a big deal of like accidentally using the wrong pronoun for a cis person. Okay. Okay.
0: You know what? I'm going to try it again. Okay. Okay. (laughs) All right. So, if we would not make a big deal of accidentally using a pronoun for a cis person, then we shouldn't when we make that same mistake for someone who is transgender. Mm -hmm. I'm trying. Thank you. And I really, really, I can't tell you how much I appreciate that, Alistair, that you told me that because. Not that it's up to you to educate me. I know I need to do my own education. But when the opportunity arises, I I really do appreciate that. So thank you.
1: Yes, of course. I mean, I am here right now in the capacity I am to educate. So I'm happy to. And I'm so appreciative that you are so open to learning and growing and doing better. Well,
0: thank you. There are some, have some things that have made me realize that it's really important to do so. So here we are. And I'm so honored that you're here with us today. And one thing I wanted to talk about, and you touched upon it before. So when you went into your graduate placement last summer, that was the first time that you had publicly decided to use the they, them pronouns. And that is really important for us to be aware of, that this might be a really new thing to the person who is using the the new pronouns, the different Mm -hmm. pronouns. And whenever something is new and those waters are untested, you know, I mean, how did you feel when you first started using publicly using different
1: pronouns? Well, it's definitely very nerve wracking because it's like, how are they going to react? You know, is it going to be okay? I even like, even when I met my supervisor at my summer placement, I just had those pronouns in my signature. And then I just kind of mentioned it later when we were, when we met on Zoom for the first time before my placement started. But then with my school placement, when I emailed to introduce myself, I actually wrote out, Hi, my name is Alistair. My pronouns are they, them. And that was like, Oh God, how are they going to react? You know? And yeah, also being like, just because of how deeply rooted like gender binary is and how much we reinforce it in society in raising kids and stuff, there's really no like there's no one age someone is gonna realize they're trans or realize their gender identity. Some people might know as kids, some people might not until far later. And I am still pretty young at twenty six. So knowing that your student is likely pretty young and you don't know where they are in their process of like, you know, knowing their self and their identity that puts another dynamic on the whole, like you can't expect them to educate you. What if they're still trying to figure out themselves?
0: hmm hmm Which is also a very good point. You had mentioned, not in this podcast, but previously that when you, not only your pronouns, but your name, you legally changed your name Mm -hmm. and you did not choose Alistair initially. Right. And I think that is really important for us to understand how to support people better. Can you talk about a little bit of what the thought process of changing your name and, and actually deciding not to go with your initial choice?
1: Yeah, so for people who don't know, I just want to throw out the term dead name, which refers to the name a person, like a transgender person was given at birth. Dead naming someone means using that name rather than their chosen name. And even if like no one has to legally change their name, I had a time changing my name legally. I'll just leave it at that. But I wanted to do it, so I did it. But, you know, if that takes time, costs money, or any other number of barriers, that people might not do it. I'm kind of losing my train of thought because there's just so many threads I want to mention. But I mean, a name is so important. It's like such, you know, an important part of our identities, I think. And especially to trans people, that name is can be something really personal to them. And, you know, it can take time to find the right name. I've known some people who've like changed their name a bunch of times, which might be another reason why they don't want to commit to legally changing their name. Yes. And the kind of sad thing was I actually liked my dead name. I feel like I even feel kind of mean calling it my dead name. So I call it my old name sometimes because I actually liked it. I felt like it suited me, but I didn't like how it was very feminine gendered which is why I wanted to change my name. So I went for a unisex name at first, and that was Alex. So my my old name started with an A. So there's a little trend. You can see I wanted to keep that A. Mm -hmm. And I liked Alex because it was simple, which I thought my old name was also pretty simple. That was something I liked about it. And I liked it when it was like, Written out. I I changed it over the summer. So, no school. So, I'm just using it with my friends. It's COVID. The only person I'm hanging out with in real life is my partner. So, I talked to my friends online and I liked Alex at the time. So, I did it. So, at school for the next semester, I was like, okay, I'm going to go by Alex. And then, hearing it out loud was when I was like, "Mm, this isn't clicking. And that's when I switched to Alistair, which I was between Alex and Alistair. And I picked Alex because it was simpler. But in the end, like hearing Alistair, I was like, oh, that's me. (laughs) And so I think what I'm saying is, you know, support people. Like if they're changing their name, just like it's not that hard, right? To change what you call them. I mean, like you might make some missteps, but again, correct yourself and move on. If people get married and change their last name and say, like, oh, call me this now, you're not going to raise a fuss about it, right? Exactly. So, and like that exploration can be, that exploration of different names can be an important part of this person's social, so we have medical transition and social transition, and neither is like necessary to be trans, like your gender identity is just what you feel inside, but social transition can include things like changing your name and pronouns, while medical transitions are those medical procedures. So, like, exploring those new names can be an important aspect of the social transition. And you can support them by honoring that name. And if they want to change it, honor that new name. Exactly. And, kind of funny. Another reason Alex didn't really vibe with me was because I felt like, even though it's a unisex name, because of my appearance and voice, it would still be like feminine coded. Like, Like, oh, they'll think it's short for like Alexandra or Alexandria. I was actually thinking like, if I changed my name to Alex legally, would I do Alex or Alexander? (laughs) Like I thought about that. But in the end, I went with Alistair, which is a masculine name. But it's really funny because I've noticed that if I'm in a like, if I talk to someone like over email or if someone just knows my name, Alistair and all my pronouns, They will assume I'm male, but in person, I'm getting comments like, oh, that's such a pretty name. So even this name, which is like traditionally masculine, when they see it attached to me, they're now associating it. They're now like putting this like feminine descriptor on it. So that's something interesting that I've noticed. I don't really have a point with it. I just wanted to say like, that's how per- pervasive, like the gender binary is. You're like, you're taking this name that if you look it up, it's a masculine name, but now you are seeing it in a feminine way. A
0: feminine light. Yeah. Well, that is very interesting.
1: Well, thank you for
0: sharing that. And I think it, it that's just good for us, for people who are seeking to understand. I appreciate you sharing that with us yeah, because- when we meet someone who has recently changed their name and then maybe they change it again, I think your insight helps people understand why
1: and mm-hmm. helps us to respect those changes. Mm-hmm. Something else funny that happens is now I have to deal another like you know a result of changing my name legally is now I have to go change my name in all these places like my bank and insurance and all of that stuff. And I will go and say, like, I changed my name, or I have to remember to say I changed my first name. But even when I clarify, they're like looking at the last name and being confused, like this is the same. I'm like, no, the first name, the first name.
0: <laughs> oh, um, it is interesting. You know, I um surprised, you know, this is my last name is is my married name that I took. And before I got married, I didn't know that it would be a big deal. But no one will spell it right. They will always want to spell it like the ketchup. And so like if I check in somewhere, I'll say Heinz H I or H I N E S. And if I spell it all out, they're like H E I. I'm like, no H I, <laughs> but mm-hmm. it's just, you know, people are busy and, right, yeah um, you know, try to give them a break. But I was like, that was the biggest surprise. I just, you know, I had a really, my maiden name was very simple to spell. So there weren't many ways to spell that. So anyway, All right. Well, we digress, right? But that's what it's about. You know, it's great to have a conversation with Mm -hmm. you. And I really appreciate your honesty, your vulnerability, and coming here and talking with us today. And it's been such an honor to get to know you. And I'm so excited to hear where you land, your CFY, and and where you land as an SLP. And we have a really exciting year ahead of you, including graduation this spring. So best of luck
1: to you in all your endeavors. And keep up the good work. Thank you. And thank you so much for having me. I really appreciated it.
0: Thanks for joining us here at Keys for SLPs providing keys to open new doors to better serve our clients throughout the lifespan. Remember to go to speechtherapypd.com to learn more about earning ASHA CEUs for this episode and more. Thanks for your positive reviews and support. I would love for you to write a quick review and subscribe. Keep up the good work.